1: It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm grateful to all of you for being with us. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, for the last few days, uh, if you've been listening to the show, you know that we've been talking about the politics of the surge in uh, COVID-19 cases uh, pretty extensively. And uh, we'll continue to do that in the weeks ahead as it remains a front-page story. But we felt it was really important to spend a show, today's show, Talking about the science of what's happening right now, Uh, getting to some of the questions that many of you have been asking me about how we're supposed to react to this surge in COVID cases, um, being told maybe we should mask when we're indoors again, worrying about our children and their exposure to the virus, the fact that uh, uh, exposure and infections among children have risen dramatically in recent days. Uh, There's so many things that we don't understand about the virus. And so we've assembled a a stellar panel of public health experts to uh, walk us through some of the issues. And I hope give answers that many of you out there want. Before I introduce them, let me just read briefly the Atlanta Journal-Constitution this morning reprinted a piece that the New York Times published just a couple of days ago, and I think it sets up our conversation rather well. So I'm just going to read a paragraph or two from it and then introduce the panel. A week of public health reversals from the White House and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has left Americans with pandemic whiplash, sowing confusion about coronavirus vaccines and mask wearing as the Delta variant upends what people thought they knew about how to stay safe. Vaccines remain effective and highly protective against hospitalization and death, even among those infected with the extremely contagious Delta variant. Mask wearing does prevent transmission of the virus to those most at risk. But the crisis President Joe Biden once thought he had under control is changing shape faster than the country can adapt. An evolving virus, new scientific discoveries, deep ideological divides, and 18 months of ever-changing pandemic messaging have left Americans skeptical about how to deal with the problem. I think that sets us up for a good conversation today, so let me introduce our panel today. Dr. Jody Guest is with us. She is the vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health and has a long background in working with infectious diseases. Um, and, um, and is, is, of course, an epidemiologist herself, Dr. Guest, one of the things I noticed about you is that you were the COVID czar at the 2021 Alaskan Iditarod. That's a great credential. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> Just what that exactly, certainly... uh, it... go, ahead. go ahead. I was going
2: to say, it's certainly an unusual one and, um, one, I hoped wouldn't go into the next race, but we might be heading that direction.
1: Oh, gosh, please. I, that's so, that's such bad news. We should point out, by the way, for people to know just a little bit about more about you, you're a big fan of the Iditarod. This wasn't like your first experience, experience up there. Up. You've been involved in the Iditarod for like the last decade.
2: That's right. I normally work on general logistics for the race, but... Um, Starting in 2020, when COVID cases started occurring in the state of Washington, when I was up in Alaska, I got involved in the epidemiology of trying to protect all the Alaskan villages and everyone running the race.
1: Wow. That's fascinating. Um, We're also joined by your colleague, uh, Dr. Ben Lopman. He's an infectious disease epidemiologist, a professor of uh, epidemiology, also at the Rollins Rollins School of Public Health. How are you today, Ben? Great, thank you. It's a pleasure pleasure to be back here. Thanks. Um, I should say Dr. Lopman. I'm going to use formal titles today, so I apologize for that. Rodney Lynn, Dr. Rodney Lynn is with us. Dr. Lynn, the last time you were here, and you've been on several times, um, you have been an interim dean of the Department of Public Health at Georgia State University, but in late spring... You got that title officially. You are now the dean of the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Congratulations. I'm sure that your appearances on Political Rewind uh, was probably, uh, (laughs) you know, a problem for you, but you overcame them and got the job anyway.
3: (laughs) Well, thank you. It's It's a pleasure to be with you and a pleasure to be serving as dean here at the School of Public Health at Georgia State.
1: We're also joined by Dr. Amber Schmitke. Uh, Dr. Schmitke is um, really an interesting uh, uh, personality in the midst of all this because you, Dr. Schmitke, are um, among other things a uh, uh, the chair of the division of natural sciences and mathematics at the University of Saint Mary. Uh, You have been publishing one of the most respected blogs on giving us data about how the virus is unfolding uh, ever since it began some time ago. And so it's a particular pleasure to also welcome you to the show. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an honor to be
1: here. Um, as a matter of fact, as long as we uh, uh, you have the ball in your court, would you help us start us off? One of the first things we need to do is get everybody involved in a conversation about just how serious is this uh, new surge in the virus, particularly here in Georgia. And, um, I was looking at your, uh, piece that I think was published at the end of July, in which you give us some pretty important statistics about Georgia. Just tell us a little bit about what you saw in that final week of July and what is of concern about what you're seeing. Yeah. So,
0: um, in the most recent article, I sort of did a weekend review, and I do these every week and sort of measure where are we now compared to a week before. And last week, what we saw was an 85% increase in the cases that were reported. Uh, we saw a 66% increase in hospital admissions. Um, ICU admissions are rising a lot slower than that, about 8%. Um, and deaths are more or less neutral compared to the previous week. Um, We tend to know from previous surges that cases and hospitalizations tend to trend together. Um, And unfortunately, the deaths come usually on a delay, three to five weeks later. Um, And so this is a a concerning trend, not just because of what this could mean for people who are fighting for their lives, but also the strain that it's going to put on our hospitals. Um, Some areas are already experiencing you know, they've reached back to the peak that they previously experienced in the last summer and winter surges. I'm especially thinking of the Savannah area. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot to be concerned about right now. Um,
1: I I know that uh, up in northeast Georgia at their hospital, as you point out, in Savannah, Augusta has seen a, a big uh, surge. We're seeing it uh, down in the southwest corner of the state as well. Um, Dr. Guest, uh, what... Why are we suddenly seeing this spike uh, in in a state like Georgia?
2: I think it's a couple of things. It's the Delta variant has now settled into the state of Georgia and is our robust variant here. But we're also a state that has very low vaccination rates compared to our national averages. You know, when you have low vaccinations, you've got people who are not fully protected against this Delta variant. And the Delta variant is taking advantage of communities where vaccination rates are not high. We as a state have low vaccination rates, but we certainly have pockets of our states that are our state that are even lower than our state average. And so the area that Dr. Schmidke was just talking about, the southeast corner where our hospitals are so full, is also the, the part of our state that has the lowest vaccination rate.
1: You know, Dr. Lin, um, and, and I'd love uh, to uh, get you and Dr. Lopman on this. It, we, you know, there's been a lot of skepticism expressed about, how, about the messaging that public health uh, organizations, CDC, uh, Anthony Fauci, been under fire f- from some quarters— uh, because the science is evolving, and so it's, you, you can't know everything you'd like to know at any given moment about this virus, which is a new thing. But Dr. Lin, here's the th- point. I remember months ago hearing public health officials in the United States start warning about the Delta variant, and the possibility that it could create significant crises in regions of the state where vaccinations were low. And so it was as if we've known for months that this could be heading our way. And as a healthcare worker said, this isn't the light at the end of the tunnel. This is a freight train speeding at us. Dr. Lynn.
3: Well, that's certainly uh, true. And, and there's uh, much work to do. Um, the most uh, effective... Uh, you know, strategy is to increase vaccination rates, and as you've noted, we've known for uh, many months uh, that 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 was the priority, and that remains the priority. Um, the, the there, there is a, a good news and bad news, and I think that the the the, the good news is that 90% of those over uh, 65, you know, nationally are are vaccinated, and so uh, the toll of, of deaths that we saw. Uh, uh, you know, in, in months past, I don't expect to see again at that scale. Uh, that said, uh, when six out of 10 uh, people in our state are not fully vaccinated uh, and we have a, a variant that is uh, uh, many more times infectious than uh, prior uh, you know, strains of, the, of this virus, it's a recipe for you know, uh, outbreaks. And uh, if we really want to keep our kids in school, Uh, If we want to be able to uh, keep our economy going and uh, have parents that work, uh, then there are some basic things that we need to do, and and those include uh, really uh, increasing vaccination rates and uh, masking. Uh, Those are the two most effective strategies we have presently, Uh, and, you know, I'd like to see us uh, doing more to ensure that those are, are being scaled up.
1: Dr. Lopman?
4: Yeah thanks. I'd like to add to that that you know that clearly the science the science is evolving, but there are things that we we have known for quite some time that remain true. I mean the first. Uh, and this is just the fact of infectious disease control that the faster you act, the the more impactful um, the more impactful those those actions those interventions will have. So like you said, we've we've known for for many months that uh, Delta is here you know, is likely to be more infectious and spread. And so, you know, we should have taken advantage of that temp- low transmission period. The other thing that's been very consistent and remains so now is that these vaccines work remarkably well. And that's the reason, as Dr. Lin and others have already stated, that the best thing we can do is to increase vaccine coverage. You know, these vaccines are just remarkably effective against severe disease, for sure things like hospitalization and death, but also just against any uh, infection, symptomatic or asymptomatic. Uh, and that's that's true for both the kind of original so-called ancestral strain, as well as this Delta variant. The vaccines remain highly effective. And and so, you know, as you say, the, the situation's always evolving, but we still have remarkably effective
1: tools in our toolbox here. So, um- we know that there is a political divide over vaccines, and, and I don't really want to address that on this show today. We've talked about it plenty on our political panel shows. Um, but we also know that there are healthcare workers who have refused to be vaccinated. Presumably, some of them have told reporters because um, they're still uncomfortable that FDA has not given final approval for Pfizer, Moderna. Uh, vaccines, either of those. So I'd love to ask you all to weigh in on, on that. I mean, it, 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 Dr. Guest, is there any reason why people should be nervous about the fact that the vaccines have only gotten emergency approval? And when I think we're going to see FDA give, it, give them final approval fairly soon, right? And the question is, will that make a difference?
2: Right. So, you know, we're expecting Pfizer to receive its full approval from the FDA at the beginning of September, probably by Labor Day. Moderna has already applied, but is still submitting data routinely um, to the FDA. So that may be a little bit uh, further behind. We know from a Kaiser Family Foundation survey recently that the majority of people, three out of 10 who've not yet been vaccinated, say that they're waiting for full FDA approval. I hope that's really what they're waiting for, and I hope that you know some early September comes and they move forward with vaccination. I'm not positive. I think that that's the real reason people are waiting. Emergency use authorization sound might sound scary, but during a pandemic, it is the way that something becomes approved. And so the safety data, the efficacy data, that was our, all already reviewed by the FDA, and so. It's just some additional paperwork and manufacturing plant style of of, um, surveys that are done to get to full approval. And I'm not diminishing it, but I think that we've diminished what an EUA is. And it is showing us that these vaccines are incredibly safe and they are incredibly effective. And we should not underestimate what the FDA did to give the EUAs to these vaccines.
1: Dr. Schmicke?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with what Dr. Guest just said. I think that the only thing I'll add is that, you know, I, I agree that I think that, you know, that's a common talking point that, you know, people are waiting to get the vaccine because they want full FDA approval. I'm also doubtful that that's actually going to move that many people off the fence. I really hope it does, but I'm kind of doubtful. I think it's going to shift the goalpost to something else. But what it does do is give the legal cover for more organizations to start requiring that, uh, vaccinations. And so that could be really impactful too. um, think about schools, businesses, being able to fly on an airplane. Um, I don't know the scope of which that we're going to see, um, that really implemented, but that's what at full FDA approval will do as well.
1: Dr. Lynn, um, we know, that we continue to see, and one of the issues that you have focused on in your career is health disparities, health care disparities from, in minority communities. And I know that's a particular concern to you. Um, and we do continue to see a hesitancy to be vaccinated in the African-American community. And, and I know there are people like Va- Valerie Montgomery Rice over at Morehouse School of Medicine who has been trying to figure out ways to get mobile vaccine uh, uh, vehicles out in the street to vaccinate people, but this is a heavy lift, isn't it? Well, it's certainly a, a challenge and one that,
3: uh, you know, we've got to uh, take on. Uh, the, the the data uh, suggests that uh, uh, African-Americans are vaccinated uh, at, at levels uh, below their representation in the population, and there are a wide, uh, you know, number of reasons uh, for that. And I think we need to take uh, action and meet people where they are. Uh, We're doing some of that work in uh, Clarkson and DeKalb County. Uh, On the one hand, DeKalb is outperforming the state in terms of partially and fully vaccinated individuals. There are really large uh, racial differences in DeKalb with uh, only 36 percent of uh, black residents uh, that vaccinated versus 53% of, of white residents uh, for at least one dose. So uh, those kinds of uh, you know, uh, disparities uh, raise questions about uh, what's driving the, the, the disparity. Uh, the work we're doing in, in Clarkston with both the African-American and immigrant refugee community there is really uh, to identify people uh, within uh, the, the communities and subcommunities. Uh, that could serve as as champions and messengers. Uh, we're also using uh, incentives um, to to encourage people to be vaccinated. We're working with the community-based organizations there uh, as well. And uh, you know I, I would report that uh, we're making progress there. The community is making progress and all those that are working on this since late June uh, to to now, the beginning of August, uh, we've seen uh, 10 to eleven percent uh, you know point uh, percentage point jump in um, partially and fully vaccinated individuals. So um, you know it's not uh, where we want it to be, but uh, this is the kind of work that we have to do uh, to get the, the vaccination rates up. We have to uh, understand that people have uh, hesitation, lack of trust, uh, and uh, we've got to do everything to, Provide a, a richer, uh, fuller information environment to, to educate people uh, and to give them uh, incentives uh, to, to move in the direction uh, of vaccination.
1: Yeah, I should have pointed out, and uh, that you, in fact, I think the grant is from CDC to go into Clarkston and deal with the refugee and minority communities there. And you say you're having some success. Do you have examples yet of the kind of messages that are? working for the people who've been reluctant and now turn around and say, yeah, give me the shot in the arm.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, for us, it's been really um, one understanding that where the message comes from is important. Uh, So the source of the information uh, and then actually listening uh, to the concerns that people have. And uh, I'm not a big believer in repeating uh, misinformation. So. Uh, I don't want to go into details about everything that people uh, are saying, but uh, what's important is that we're responding directly to uh, the concerns uh, and the misinformation that, uh, that people uh, bring uh, uh, you know, or have with them.
2: If I can Thank add you, uh, some, yeah, some work we've been doing with people who experience homelessness in Fulton and DeKalb counties, what we're hearing consistently is no one's ever given me the space to ask questions. And so what Dr. Lynn was mm. just saying is so incredibly important. It's providing information, but I think it's actually leading with space for people to ask questions. I would also say that a lot of folks who are moving from I'm not sure I'm hesitant to being vaccinated, it is multiple conversations to move a person that direction so it's not the same thing as when we had mass vaccination sites and people were lined up and you couldn't find a parking spot this is hours of conversations perhaps repeatedly over time to move a person towards vaccination and that's a really important thing to do but it is a slower process because those questions really matter.
1: So, Dr. Lopman, even as we're still uh, uh, working to make sure that people will get vaccinated, increase, I mean, we're only at 40 percent fully vaccinated in Georgia. puts us near the bottom. But even uh, among vaccinated people, there are questions they're asking, um, number one. And, and I know we don't have all the answers yet because the data is still being collected. But number one, what's the length of protection? How long will the two shots that I got from Moderna that others got from Pfizer, what do we think now about how long those will protect us? And what's the research starting to show us about whether we're going to need booster shots? Yeah,
4: terrific questions. Um, I mean, you know, the first thing I'll say, we've seen a lot of of talk, a lot of news about these breakthroughs infections amongst vaccinated individuals. And, you know, the first thing to remember about that is, you know, the, the reason we're seeing that is there's a lot of coronavirus around, right? But that doesn't mean the vaccines are any less effective. They are, you know, still highly effective against the circulating strains, including, including the, Delta, the Delta variant. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of people who are hospitalized, for example, are unvaccinated, upwards of 95. Right? Um, so, but there is this important question about for how long will the vaccines protect? Um, and to some extent, you're right, we can't know that. Right? We won't, this, this virus has only been with us for 18 months and the vaccines have only been in widespread use for a little more than, than six months. So we can't know for sure. But what we can do is we can look at, uh, at who's getting infected, how long ago were they vaccinated? those kind of real-world studies that CDC and others are doing. Um, And, you know, so far it looks like the vaccines are providing sustained protection, at least out for as long as they've been used, for six months. And I think, you know, the other thing that one can do is to look at um, new laboratory studies, kind of the immune response, right, for how long are antibodies from the vaccine sustained at sufficient levels. And, again, I think those, uh, from what we've seen so far, um, those provide me with, with optimism. It looks like, you know, the, the antibody levels remain pretty high and the other parts of the immune system that provide protection uh, are also are also maintained. So, you know, this is a, certainly an area we'll have to kind of wait and see. Um, I, I would imagine if any group is going to require a booster dose, it will be the elderly. Elderly uh, are uh, even, you know, we look at flu vaccines, um, protection doesn't, isn't as good and doesn't last as long in older age groups. So that might be the first group to, that might require a booster dose or or a revaccination. But this, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic here. And uh, this is an area that, you know, we'll just have to keep, keep looking at.
1: Okay. But Dr. Schmitke, I am in that older group. I got vaccinated in February and March uh, or February and early April. And so given the, the, the big percentage of Georgians who aren't vaccinated. I don't know at what point I'm going to be out there at my neighborhood supermarket and run across somebody who's shedding virus and whoops, my protection has lapsed. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I think a lot of people, whatever their age, are beginning to ask questions about. And again, that science can't answer, as Dr. Lopman just said, with any certainty at this point.
0: I'm sure that's really frustrating and scary. I think that, um, and trust me, as a parent, also it's scary for me the thought that I could potentially bring something home to my unvaccinated child. Um, I think that you know, in addition to what Dr. Lottman said, I think that we can also sort of, I don't know that it's necessarily that your vaccine doesn't work, but we're almost sort of flooding the zone with the virus. We are, um, mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, like this vaccine was designed for to provide protection like a raincoat in a steady rain. Um, and instead, what we're experiencing with as much viral load as infected people are sort of spewing out into the air, um, we're almost asking that vaccine to act like a raincoat in a downpour. Um, it's a lot more to protect us against. And so I think when you're seeing those breakthroughs, um, it could be an issue of waning immunity, but I think it's also a length of exposure um, and all of those other things. And so I think that's why it's important even for the fully vaccinated to consider adding back um, those additional strategies for disease prevention. Um, because you know it's we have to think of this as a multi-layered approach. Normally I recommend using two to three of those strategies in conjunction at all times.
1: We just lost your uh, sound, Dr. Schmicki. We just lost your sound. We're going to reconnect with you. Sam Bernard will reconnect with you, and we'll fix that. Um, Dr. Gass, pick up on all of this, if, if you will. And by the way, I don't want to stress the negative, the fact that the vaccine may or may not last for a long time, I, because, because that's one of the issues that maybe discourages people from wanting to be vaccinated at all, plus this notion of the breakthrough infections that people are seeing. So pick up on all this.
2: Sure. So, you know, what Dr. Schmidtke was describing is this idea of a Swiss cheese model that we love in public health, where you're trying to stack up all these protections between you and the virus. And Swiss cheese, of course, has holes. I want to point out that the vaccine is your densest, thickest piece of Swiss cheese that you can possibly get. It's got the fewest holes. It is going to be your number one mode of protection. And then you stick a mask on there and the holes aren't going to line up. You know, when you hold up a package of Swiss cheese, you're not seeing all the way through. <laughs> and that's the idea of this is that you want to get vaccinated and then put your mask back on. Try not to be out in huge public um, you know, settings, et cetera. You know, but the breakthrough cases are not common. And so we want to make sure we understand the data. Georgia um, Department of Public Health has just put up a great infographic on their website showing the breakthrough cases. So out of over 4 million fully vaccinated people in our state, 4,908 have had a breakthrough case since Mm. January of 2021. That is 0.12%. And 118 have been hospitalized and 24 have died. And absolutely any death is one too many. But that is six one thousandths of a percent have died as a breakthrough case. Our vaccines are incredibly important at preventing illness in anyone, even with the Delta variant.
1: Well, thank you for making that point. Let me do this. Uh, Let me get our first break of the show out of the way With schools starting again in Georgia this week, I think talking about children and COVID 19 is especially important. And I really want to ask the panel to talk about the concerns that we're seeing of more and more children being infected. We'll do that and more after these messages. We have a panel of really top-notch public health professionals on our show today. Dr. Rodney Lynn, Dean of the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Dr. Amber Schmidtke, who is a uh, professor and, I think, chair of the Department of uh, Medicine and Mathematics at St. Mary's University. Uh, Dr. Benjamin Lottman. Lottman is at Rollins School of Public Health, where he teaches uh, epidemiology. And Dr. Jody Guest, Vice Chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health. Um, school has started. Amber Schmidtke, if I can, let me just quickly quote something that you wrote in your most recent blog. Um, you point out that children's hospitals in Kansas City, which is where you're based, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and other uh, locations are surging with children needing hospitalization and intensive care for COVID-19. In Oklahoma, there are no pediatric hospital beds available. Arkansas is struggling, and you quote a doctor in Alabama who says, I'm scared. This is Dr. David Kimberlin, who says, "Um, I was uncomfortable last year, but I'm scared right now for what lies in front of us with respect to our children. Dr. Schmitke, weigh in on that, and let's get everybody else involved.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, so first of all, I approach this as both a public health professional, but also as a parent. And, um, you know, seeing things like that are are really scary. Um, I think in many ways, because of the way that, Uh, we take care of people with COVID-19, that's happening behind a hospital wall and visitors aren't really allowed in a lot of those spaces. And so what we're finding is that, you know, a lot of people are able to sort of have an out of sight, out of mind kind of experience with this. Um, And there's also been this narrative because we've been so focused on protecting older folks and those who are immunocompromised, that children, it's a benign infection in kids. And for the large part it is, Um, but it doesn't mean that the risk is zero. so what you're, we should really take a lesson from the experiences that other states are having right now where they are being overwhelmed in their children's hospitals. Um, Georgia is special for a variety of really great reasons, but we are not unique that we have some sort of special protection for Georgia kids. And so, you know, as we're going back to school and as we have school districts that are sort of ignoring the CDC guidance, um, that's really troubling to me, both as somebody who cares deeply about public health, who cares deeply about Georgia and who is a mom.
4: Yeah,
3: I, I would just uh, add and remind us that, uh, you know, kids under the age of 12 are not, not, not currently uh, eligible for vaccination. Uh, and um, kids um, over 12, uh, that th- maybe in middle or high school, uh, many of them remain unvaccinated. So uh, kids are at risk of uh, uh, you know, contracting this virus, just as adults are. Uh, they uh, can get sick. Um, you know, mild symptoms, sometimes no symptoms, but can also have serious complications. Uh, so there is a, a, a need for us to um, protect our, our children. Everyone wants kids to be in school. Um, uh, the, the CEC guidelines are for universal masking for um, teachers, staff and students and visitors to the school. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to see Atlanta, Decatur, Gwinnett and Clayton have uh, heeded that, that, that guidance uh, and those recommendations, uh, but there are other districts uh, that have not. Uh, I know that our priority is to keep kids in school. We've seen uh, during this pandemic, the toll uh, that, that kids not being in school uh, has not on just the, the children and their learning, but also on our whole uh, economy uh, where parents uh, are, are unable to go to work. So there is uh, significant work to do here uh, on vaccination to ensure that we're protecting children on masking in schools, uh, to, to make sure that we, we we do all we can to uh, to keep our kids safe.
1: Dr. Lopman?
4: Yeah, thanks. I'd like to point I'd like to add to this is that I absolutely agree that you know kids are susceptible and you know for the most part have lower risk of, of severe disease. Um, but they are important in transmission, right they can get infected and they even if they're not showing symptoms themselves or have mild infection they can transmit to other students to teachers uh, or they can bring the virus back home and spread to their to their parents who either you know are uh, can't be vaccinated or aren't vaccinated and so you know protecting kids uh, protects them but it's also an important piece of protecting transmission in the wider community and i You know, I also have a daughter uh, who started who started second grade yesterday, and fortunately, um, there's a mask requirement at at her school. So I'm grateful, grateful for that. And I think it's just an important piece of you know getting kids back to school as safely as possible.
1: Uh, Doctor Guest, uh, you know, of course, not all school systems in the state are going to require masks, and in fact, there's pressure right now. And I'd rather not talk about the politics of it, but there is some pressure uh, on the governor to uh, declare that n- uh, no school district can, in fact, impose a mask mandate. He doesn't have the emergency powers that he once did to insist on that, I don't believe. But nevertheless, masking up for school children is not only an issue K through 12, but uh, although I think Emory, probably Rollins, um, I don't know about Georgia State, uh, not just K through 12, but there are universities across the state that are still uncertain about what they're doing about masking uh, Dr. Guest.
2: Yeah, so we're lucky at Emory that um, we've taken a very strong and, I think, um, appropriate message on masking, which is we've got required vaccination for our students, faculty, and staff, and we also are continuing to mask when we're indoors. I'm starting to see more universities add that back. And I think that that's really an important thing to do. We know you can transmit this Delta variant. We know you can take it home to people who are not yet vaccinated, those under 12, those who've not yet found their way to a vaccination, and those who are immunocompromised, where the vaccinations don't work at the same level they do with a person who's not immunocompromised. And so it's it's a really important second layer of protection and it's a way to make sure we stay in school, and if that is our priority, I don't see why we would not ask everyone to wear a mask. Uh,
1: Dr. Lynn, you're part of the University System of Georgia where they are not uh, the whole system is not requiring masks. Uh, I don't know if individual schools are able to uh, do what they need on that um, and I don't want to put you in you know trouble with the bosses, but you know how <laughs> what do you feel about the masking? <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's a great question.
1: I I think uh, following on Dr. Guest's
3: comments, uh, because we have such high levels of uh, unvaccinated or numbers of unvaccinated individuals uh, and um, the possibility of, uh, you know, spread even among vaccinated individuals, you know, masking is is critically important uh, as a public health strategy. Um, You're right, the University System of Georgia uh, currently does not have a mandate for masks. Uh, it is encouraging masks uh, for all uh, individuals while indoors uh, in, in public areas. Um, the University of Georgia State, we are you know, offering regular testing. We are uh, we are a vaccination site as well, uh, and we're obviously encouraging masks indoors. Uh, but the CDC is recommending uh, masking uh, indoors in settings of subst- substantial or high transmission, and as of Yesterday, 154 counties in Georgia, including Fulton County, meet the criterion for substantial or high trans transmission. Damn. So uh, it follows that, and I believe that uh, a mass requirement for individuals in indoor settings uh, makes sense and is something that uh, institutions should have the should, should latitude to, to implement.
1: Dr. Schmidke, let me change subjects uh, and ask you uh, to start us off on a conversation about one of the uh, recommendations that CDC issued. um, I think their update was on July 27th, so it was uh, within the past week. And and they they issued a number of guidelines. Um, One of them that I thought was interesting is they added a recommendation for fully vaccinated people who have a known exposure to someone with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 to be tested three days, three to five days after exposure, and to wear a mask in public indoor settings for 14 days or until they receive a negative test result. Um, So here's one of the questions is, um, our senior producer, Amelia Brock, says testing locations are becoming harder to find. At least she's experiencing that. Um, is, is that a concern at a time? I, I mentioned on this show yesterday that I was on an airplane sitting across the aisle from an older man who just refused to put his mask up and I, my wife and I have both decided that this week we're going to kind of you know avoid having in, in, you know involvement with our friends or anything. We're going to kind of protect others and stay in our house and And I just wonder if that's where we're headed uh, as long as we're dealing with this problem of unvaccinated people shedding virus.
0: Yeah, uh, and i and again, I'm sure that's really frustrating to be in this position and feel like you've you've done the things that were expected, and and to still have to do some of the the, the worrying, um, and testing that was needed earlier in the pandemic. Um, without a doubt, Georgia does not do enough testing. Um, we do not have the testing infrastructure to properly monitor this pandemic, and that we can see right now in the way that test positivity is skyrocketing. Um, What that does is mean that um, we can see case rate um, but test positivity helps us to see whether we're accurately counting te- our case rate. And when the test positivity is really high, that means we're undercounting cases. So that's kind of how those two things go together. Um, you know, CDC, when they're recommending waiting three to five days, that's to account for the incubation period of the virus. So that's why um, that's part of the guidance. Um, but, yeah, you know, because we don't we can't tell by looking at you whether you are an asymptomatic infected person or not, um, I think that's the reason why they're asking for vaccinated people to go ahead and get tested after a confirmed exposure or a, you know, a risky event like your experience on the airplane um, because you know we can't tell by looking at you. And out of an abundance of caution, we just want you to go ahead and do that, what really feels like the bare minimum to me, of putting a mask on um, while you're waiting for your test results to come back.
1: Um, Dr. Guest, uh, the recommendations from CDC are pretty basic, right? You tell me if I miss it, wear a mask, continue indoors particularly, uh, especially with a lot of people around you, maintain social distancing. There's really nothing new or different from what we all dealt with last year when the virus was raging in the first and second uh, waves, right?
2: That's correct. We're back to those really basic measures of public health prevention that um, uh, those of us in public health really trust and not everyone in the public really loves, Um, but we know they work. And we know that they work for those who are unvaccinated. And we know now with the Delta variant, we need these again for those of us who are vaccinated. And so they um, they are decently basic. And I think one of the things, that um, is hard is it, it, um, it's being phrased as CDC got it wrong or you know we've, re- we've had to, to revert. But the Delta variant is new, It's different. It wasn't as plentiful in the United States when the masking guidelines were changed in May. And the Delta variant is a game changer and so that is why we're back to these measures. And they're really important for people to trust that they will help protect you and every person you love. And the more cases of COVID-19 we have, whether in pockets or widespread, the more likely we are to have another variant or mutation come along. We don't like this Delta one. We certainly don't want to see what's behind it. So we need to keep the number of cases down.
1: Um, A very good way to end this segment of the show with that caution. Um, Let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show and come back with more with our panel. Dr. Uh, Benjamin Lopman, let me start this segment with you. Um, Anthony Fauci said the, uh, the other day, that he doesn't see us having to go into lockdowns like we did at the beginning of the uh, virus last year. Um, do you agree with that? And and why not? What what is the reason that we can uh, have relatively normal lives in the midst of all this? Is it because those of us who are vaccinated are at less risk? Yeah.
4: No. You know I I do I do agree with that, and I think the reason is that unlike unlike when we had. You know, lockdown, shelter-in-place orders uh, a year, fifteen months ago, that we didn't we didn't have the tools that we have now, and we didn't have the knowledge that we have now. As we've talked about many times already, the big game changer is vaccines, right? Um, people, you know, vaccinated people are substantially more are substantially protected, and we also know that other things work, like like masks, right? They help to control um, to control transmission. So you know, I think we do have other tools available to us. And, you know, fortunately, the most the most vulnerable in the population, elderly and those with uh, underlying health conditions have relatively high vaccine coverage. Um, you no, know, but that said, we, the one lesson and the cliche that keeps being reaffirmed is that we're all in this together. Right. Yeah. And um, if we don't have high vaccine coverage in the in the community overall, in this country overall, and we remain susceptible to having increased surges, and and you know there being risk in us going back to our daily daily routine. So, you know, again, I think the best thing we can do is to is to encourage vaccination.
1: Well, let me stay with you for just another moment. Uh, I know one of your concerns is the global picture in terms of COVID nineteen, and the the issue there being it, with vast swaths of the population in other countries not being vaccinated. COVID continues to kind of circulate, I assume. Um, and and even closer to home, Florida has the worst outbreak of COVID-19 it's ever had, and they're at our southern border. So we're, you said we're all in this together, Dr. Lopman. We really are. Yeah, no, I think that's right. You know, we this is a
4: pandemic, but the, the regions that are most affected are constantly, constantly moving around, right? We saw a terrible surge in India a few months ago, right? But now North America and the U.S. specifically is reporting the most cases globally right now, right? We're having 90,000 cases a day reported in the U.S. And even in the U.S., there are clearly hotspots. The South in general um, is, is the, is the hotspot in this, in this country. Um, and you know, I think part of the reason for that is, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, the, the uh, summer in the south, in one sense, is like a winter in the north. Is that, you know it's hot here, and so we use air conditioning and we come inside, and so there's more opportunity for transmission. And the you know, one last global point I'll make on this is like we we have a supply of vaccines here. We have you know a 70% of the adult population with at least um, at least one dose but in you know highly affected areas like in southern Africa um, vaccine coverage is still one to two percent and you know improvements are being made but again we're not going to be out of this until until um, we have substantial vaccine coverage globally.
2: yeah I think it's so important to remember how connected we all are um, and you know we all keep talking about it but it's super important bringing it back to Georgia for a second. Yesterday, we had the 10th or 11th, I can't quite figure out, the 10th or 11th highest day of cases ever since March of 2020. Yesterday in our PCR cases, in the past two weeks, 3% of all total cases of COVID-19 in the state of Georgia have been in the last two weeks. We are at exponential growth in our state, and we have got to all decide that we don't want that to continue. And we do that by helping people find vaccines, talking to people about it, and making sure we're going places with our masks on so that we're not continually allowing cases to expand across our state.
3: I would just add that uh, we really need to avoid relying on a hope strategy. I hope things get better. I hope schools can stay open. I hope my business can remain productive. Um, the virus thrives when it's allowed to transmit at high, high rates, and more variants are likely in an environment of uncontrolled spread. Uh, so, you know, there, there are actions uh, that we can take individually in and out, at a population level to make a difference. Uh, vaccination, uh, as I said earlier, is the most important Uh, step we can can take. Uh, And so I would encourage everyone to avail themselves of uh, these highly effective vaccines that are available. Uh, Given what we know today, uh, additionally, wearing masks in in public indoor facilities uh, is uh, a vital prevention and protection strategy. Uh, And it really uh, allows us to do much of what we want to do, have our kids in school, work, work, have a strong economy, travel, see family, see friends. Uh, So it's really a vital uh, step for us to take um, as we continue to learn more about um, uh, the emerging variants. Uh, Let's leverage our agency to control the level of spread and ensure that society can operate normally.
1: You know, Dr. Schmicki, if you strip it of all the political implications that people attach to how they're dealing with the virus, Putting on a mask to go to the supermarket uh, isn't really a very big deal at all. And it's a little bit startling uh, to hear the response. I get it. There are people who are, are doing it as a political statement. But if it's just because you're uncomfortable, my attitude is, get over it, Dr. schmidt
0: <laughs> Yeah, there's sort of a sense of like get over it you know because this is really not that big of an ask that we're making right I mean um but I think it's important to recognize that you know people have different comfort levels with this sort of thing but like to Dr. Lotman's point we are all in this together viruses don't recognize uh geopolitical borders they don't recognize political affiliation they don't recognize education level um they're coming for you and really it's not a question of if you're going to be exposed to Delta at this point, if you haven't been vaccinated, it's a matter of when. It is coming for you. And you have a choice about whether you want to get to immunity with vaccination, which has been proven to be safe and effective, or if you want to roll the dice with a natural infection and all the risks of hospitalization and death that come with that. And so I think that, um, you know, we we are not powerless in this, to Dr. Lin's point. We have agency here. We know the tools that are effective. And it's just up to us to use them.
1: Well, Dr. Schmicke, you get the last word uh, today's uh, Political Rewind. Thank you for being with us, uh, Dr. Uh, Rodney Lynn and uh, Dr. Jody Guest, Dr. Ben Lopman. Thank you for a I, I'm really grateful to all of you for giving us the time that you took today to be a part of this conversation. Uh, it helped me understand more. I hope it did to our listeners, too. I don't doubt that it did. That's it. We're out of time for Political Rewind. Of course, we'll be back tomorrow. Until then, please take care. Stay healthy. Yes, listen to these people who are experts. Wear your mask when you're indoors, especially. And uh, you're probably vaccinated. See if you can figure out a way to talk, you know, in a polite way to somebody who's not and encourage them to do it. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you tomorrow.